Well, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, um, uh, I'm going to invite you to go to the Gospel of John. We are in John 11 today, and uh, if you are a guest of Faith Lutheran this morning, uh, welcome in Christ's name. It's good to have you here this morning uh, as we go through the Gospel of John, John 11. And I know it says in your bulletin, uh, we're going to be uh, John 11:47. I'm actually going to back us up just two verses back to John 11:45. So go ahead and go to John 11:45. Back in January, we started this journey of going through the Gospel of John, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, um, looking at what uh, God is up to in the lives of God's people. And uh, we're uh, looking at familiar texts, and we're looking at texts that maybe you've never uh, read before, uh, some less familiar texts. And I'm guessing maybe uh, today's text isn't a text that you are as familiar with. Um, and so uh, it, it, it's good. But I want to give you a little bit of context for where we're at in the Gospel of John. There are 21 chapters in the Gospel of John, and we're about halfway through. We, of course, are in John 11, uh, chapter 11, and uh, what's going to happen today is there's going to be a shift, a significant shift from Jesus' public ministry to, um, it's, it's, it says in, uh, we're going to read this in just a moment, in verse 54, therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. And so today is kind of that pivot point from his public ministry, and things are going to go a little bit more privately. The ministry, the public ministry of Jesus began in John, uh, the Gospel of John, with uh, John the Baptist. John the Baptist baptized Jesus, of course, and that was kind of his great coming onto the stage of world history and starting to preach and teach and do all the things that he did. Uh, and the ministry concludes, the public ministry concludes with uh, the raising of Lazarus, uh, which of course we read and talked about last week uh, right here at Faith Lutheran. And so, um, so that's kind of the span of his uh, public ministry. Now the interesting thing about uh, John the disciple, uh, John the writer of this gospel, is that John dedicates almost as much time to the first 33 years of Jesus' life as he does to the last 48 hours of Jesus' life. So 33, 32 plus years of Jesus' life is, is about equal with the last 48 hours. So we're, we're coming into the last week of Jesus' life. And so that's what's going on here. Uh, and, and so we're going to slow down. Uh, for the rest of the year as we're going through John. Rather than kind of week by week or month by month, it's day by day, sometimes hour by hour, even minute by minute of what's going on in Jesus' life. And this is kind of um, a part of the genre of the gospel writings. So if you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels, there are 89 chapters in the four gospels. Of those 89, only four chapters are dedicated to uh, the early years of Jesus' life, the first um, birth up until um, when Jesus came on to his public ministry. And so much of Jesus' life, there's only four chapters uh, that is written about in the four gospels. And so as we look at this, uh, a lot of it was just kind of skipped over. The, the, the writers are like, well, it's probably not so important for future generations. 
And so of those 85 chapters, uh, that, of course, is dedicated to three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. So 85 chapters of Jesus' ministry, and I think what's really interesting is that 27 of those 85 chapters are dedicated uh, to uh, the last eight days of Jesus' life. In other words, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they focus one-third of all of their writings around the last week of Jesus' life. And John, the disciple, he says, that's not enough. The other writers are like, we're going to put about a third of our writings that are going to be the last week. John says, no, I'm going to do half. Half of my writings are going to be about the last week of Jesus' life. And so we're going to go really slowly, day by day, moment by moment, looking at the events and all that's going on until they hung Jesus on a cross to die and he takes his last breath. So that's where we're at. That's the context of what we're going to hit on today uh, is this, this pivot to slowing down and really looking at the last week of Jesus' life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are indeed a God who comes to us and who meets us in this beautiful creation today. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for an opportunity to, to gather together to worship you, to thank you, to praise you. And God, as we look at uh, this key and pivotal um, text today, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I'm going to just start off by saying, um, be careful what you pray for. Be careful what you pray for. So last September, October, uh, Bridget and I were kind of chunking out the Gospel of John, um, looking at different passages for different weeks, and you never know what's going to go on. And and so um, we just said, well, let's just do this particular passage in John 11. Um, you know, it's 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 a it's an important uh, text for sure. Let's do it next summer. Um, you know, the week of. June 27th or whatever, um, the key point of this text is really about the political ramifications, all that's going on politically, so that as they're hatching a plot to kill Jesus. And so my prayer is, oh Lord, give me some kind of sermon illustration, maybe something politically going on in the world that I might share with God's people. And I don't know if you noticed, unless your head was buried in the sand this week, there was a lot going on in Washington, D.C., politically. A lot at the executive level, a lot at the uh, uh, legislative level, and uh, a little bit going on at the judicial level. I mean, this past week, the week began with a focus on the executive branch of our government, with the January 6th hearing. What did the president say? What did the president not say? What did the president do? What did the president not do? I mean, it was kind of a big week, and that would have been enough news, you know, to kind of carry us on for weeks, if not months, at the executive level. But then... Later on in the week, the legislative branch said, no, we want, we want our news too. And so they passed gun, gun legislation, firearm legislation. Kind of a big deal. This hasn't happened in decades. But then, 
Friday, the judicial branch of our government said, no, we want to weigh into politics this week too. We've got something to say. And of course, Roe v. Wade was overturned on Friday. It's been a big week, politically. And again, any one of these news stories would have given us lots and lots of 24-hour news to kind of chew on and reflect on politically all that's going on. And, our, and we've got all that crammed in on one week. We are living in a political hot potato world, aren't we? I mean, there's just so much going on, and things are really, really hot. There's demonstrations in the street. People are upset about this, that, and the other. Thank you, Lord, for my prayers. I got it. Careful what you pray for. I was looking for a political illustration to share with you all this morning. That's what this text is about. But some of you know that even the birth, the genesis of Faith Lutheran Church, our congregation, began in the midst of lots and lots of politics. Some of you were there the Sunday that a, new, a, a reporter showed up at our worship service. How many of you remember the Sunday a, a, a radio reporter showed up to get a story about our congregation? She wasn't looking for a story. She was looking for dirt. Because that's what they do, is they look for dirt... And she was looking for some dirt on us, for a political story. And I think we disappointed her. Because when we gathered together on that Sunday, we worshiped Jesus. And we focused on God's word and asked the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us in our worship. We weren't talking about politics on that Sunday. And I hope we don't talk about politics most days of the year, most weeks of the year. But today... The text demands that we dip our toe into politics a little bit. And some of you are like, really? He's really going there? Yes, we have to. It's in the text. We don't ignore the text. And clearly, there's lots of politics going on in the world today, in our own nation. And politics is really the art and science of what it means to influence policy and at the heart of all politics is power. We talk about it as cultural wars. Earthly power is the power that gets talked about most often in our culture, in our day, and in our time. It's what's expedient in the moment. It's, it's reading what's going on in the culture, in society, and saying, okay, now what? How do we respond to this? So we are going to talk about politics this morning. And some of you are going to leave a little upset. You're going to leave a little bit irritated. Some of you are going to be like, I don't want to go back to that church. Some of you might even be tempted to send me an email this week. I would welcome that. Brian at JimmyCrackCorn.com. Go ahead. Send me an email. We're going to jump into the text this morning as we look at the politics of what's going on in Jesus' life. Jesus was not immune to politics. And we shouldn't be surprised either, because it was actually the politics in the text today where a plot was hatched, and people schemed, and they said, okay, it's time. We need to kill this guy. We need to take care of this guy. There was a threat, and that threat, his name was Jesus. And the people who were in power, Jesus threatened their power, their authority, 
and their influence on society. So for three and a half years, roughly, Jesus is a growing threat. And there's this crescendo where he's upsetting the political powers of the day. And they're getting angrier and angrier with him. And on numerous times, they said, let's get rid of him. Let's kill him. Let's stone him. But it wasn't really the time. They said, ah, or Jesus would slip away from the crowd. Something would happen. And this is growing more and more tense politically. And it's crescendoing. And and they get to this point in time where the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus says, I am the son of God. And by the way, since I'm the son of God, let me demonstrate to you my power and my authority of who I am. And then he raises a dead man back to life. That's what we read about last week. And at this point in time, it's just too much. It's too much for the powers of the day. And they said, we have got to do something. John eleven forty five, 45, and so we're going to look at the responses to the raising of Lazarus. In fact, today, Jesus isn't going to say a single word. He did all that last week and leading up to this. What we're going to read about today is all the different responses to his claims of being the Messiah, the Son of God, and then raising Lazarus from the dead. Verse 45, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, raising of Lazarus from the dead, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, I think what's most fascinating for me about how this kind of kicks off is that after they witness, all these people are standing there, they witness the raising of a dead man back to life. It doesn't say that all of them believed. It says actually many of the Jews believed, but some of them did not because they went and told the Pharisees uh, about what Jesus had done. I find that astounding. But I have to tell you, in my almost 30 years of ministry, I see this all the time. The same two people can listen to the same sermon and have a different reaction. The same two people can be in a church together and have a different reaction to what's going on in the world. The same two people can read about and and hear the, the miracles of Jesus and his testimony and have completely different reactions. And so we ought, I ought not be that surprised that not everybody believes. This happened all the time in Scripture, and this happens today. In the Old Testament times, God would perform miracles through people like Moses and Abraham and David and, and, and Joseph, and some would believe and some would not. No matter how much God performs a miracle or a sign, some people just aren't going to believe. And so this morning, as you're thinking about people in your own life who don't believe, maybe you're praying for a miracle in their life. God, show them a sign. God, show them something so that they might see it and believe it. But here's my takeaway from this. Some people are so closed, uh, so their hearts are so cold, that no matter what miracle is set before them, they will never believe. So as you're praying for people, people who do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, don't pray for an external miracle. Pray for an internal miracle that God will soften their heart, that God will open their eyes, that God will open their minds and their hearts to receive. Because that's the only way any of us 
can truly experience Jesus. It's not through the externals, it's through the internals. See, I believe all the miracles that Jesus did, feeding of the 5,000, raising dead men from the dead, uh, healing a blind man, walking on the sea, I don't believe any of those miracles, any of those signs were for non-believers. I don't think they were for people who wouldn't believe. I think Jesus did those for people who already believed as a way of encouragement to say, say, I said these things, that I am the Son of God, that I am the Messiah, that I have come. Now here is a testimony, here is a sign, here is a miracle to encourage you. I think the miracles, the signs in Scripture are meant for you and for me. Those of us who already believe, those of us who already are, are leaning in and who are open to what God is doing. And so on this day, Lazarus is raised from the dead. It's the tipping point. The political situation has got too hot. Some believe, but some of them went to the Pharisees, told um, them what Jesus had done. Verse 47. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting to the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is the man, this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and to take away both our temple and our nation. Again, just, just take this in for a second. Jesus just healed a man, a man who was dead for four days. Rather than celebrating what he had done, they go tattling and debating with the, the po folks in, in political power to say, look what he did. We need to do something about this. So they went to the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting. And most of us don't get what's going on here. Just these two groups of people coming together. The chief priests, um, those are the Sadducees. Those are the political liberals of the day. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They, they, they broadly, generally believe in the Old Testament stories but it's more kind of metaphorical. The Sadducees don't believe in miracles today. I mean, they're, they're the liberals, right? They're the progressives. They're like, ah. And then there's the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the conservatives. They were the ones who believed everything in the Old Testament in God's inspired and errant word. They believed in the Tanakh, the, the Old Testament, the first five books, the Pentateuch. They believed in the Mishnah, the oral tradition. I mean, the Pharisees, they believed it all. And they believed God's word was sound and we ought not mess with it. They were more literal. They were the conservatives of the day. And so here you've got, they believed in the resurrection. They believed in the Messiah coming. So you've got the liberals and the conservatives who hated each other, who never talked to each other. But all of a sudden, they've got a common enemy. His name is Jesus. And so what they decide to do is to hatch a plan to kill him. They would never have gathered together. But things were that bad. That's how big of a threat Jesus was. Can you imagine conservatives and liberals coming together? And saying, we got to do something, folks. It's that bad. 
It's the political climate here, and it's, it's so bad they saw no other option rather than get together. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they called a meeting together, and they said, we need to do something. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. They knew what the consequences were. That if Jesus keeps doing what Jesus is doing, these miracles, these teachings, these signs, everybody's going to believe in him. We've got to do something. And so Jesus' political opponents, his opponents of the day, they understood the ramifications, the consequences of doing nothing. They had to act or everybody was going to believe. And this is really the, the choice for us today and for all people throughout history. We either believe in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, or we don't. We either believe the words, the testimony of Jesus' own lips, that he is God incarnate, that he came from heaven to earth, or we believe that he's lying. I mean, it's really that simple. We either believe or we don't. And so on this day, and, and as we read throughout Scripture, I think there were there are categories, believers and non-believers. So I want to start with the non-believers this morning. You know, it's these, these vocal people, these people that have vitriol, they have anger. They hate Jesus because he is threatening their power and their authority. And they want to get rid of him. They want to kill him. They want to stone him. They want to do whatever it takes to remove him from the situation. And they're so angry. And maybe you know some people like this in our day today. People who hate Jesus. People who are angry with Jesus. People who are just like, Jesus, I can't stand you. You've ruined my life. I don't know a lot of people like that. People have such strong opinions. I've read some of the books of some of the uh, atheists, the agnostics today, people like Sam Harris, Stephen Hawking, Richard Dawkins. I mean, may maybe you had a college professor who just really tried to argue vehemently with you. Jesus was a liar. Jesus didn't exist. I mean, we can probably think of a handful of people of peop of, of, who do not believe, and they get all in your face about it, and they've got, they, they raise their voice. But then there's another category, non-believers. And I know a lot more of these people because these people, these non-believers, they're more ambivalent toward Jesus. It's not that they're angry with Jesus. They just don't care. I mean, they might know the stories of Jesus, but they're like, eh, doesn't really mean anything to me. It doesn't really impact me one way or another. See, there's this whole other category, and I think they're, they're very prevalent in our day today. They're the people that don't believe in Jesus, and, and they don't necessarily say it. They might even say, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. They just live their lives as if they don't believe in Jesus. A couple years ago, a pastor by the name of Craig Groeschel wrote a book called The Christian Atheist, which is kind of an interesting title, Right? And his whole argument was there's a whole lot of people walking on planet Earth today, Americans, who say that they believe in Jesus. They call themselves Christians. But their lives show that they're really atheists and what they do, the choices they make, how they live their lives day in and day out. They're superficial Christians. 
There might even be people that we, we call uh, nominal Christians, which means name-only name Christian. We might even say, oh, that's the people that show up at Christmas and Easter, right? The, the Christers. Somebody recently said, yeah, I've, I've got some family members, but they show up when there's poinsettias and lilies. I'm like, all right, I hadn't heard that before. 50 weeks out of the year. They don't live their lives as Jesus followers. But I'll show up to Christmas and Easter because that's what our family does. It's, you know, those folks. And I don't say that in a pejorative way at all. That's just a fact. A lot of people are non-believers, how they live their lives day in, day out, week in and week out, and yet they call themselves a Christian or a nominal Christian or mostly, eh, they kind of shrug their shoulders. And as we read about these people in Scripture, it's most often the crowd. It's the crowd. It's the masses, the masses of people. And in just a moment, actually next week, we're going to be in John 12. It's where Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And what is the crowd shouting? Hosanna! Yeah, God save us! They're so excited! It's in the moment, right? There's a parade, everything's good. The Messiah's come. Five days later, what are they shouting? Crucify him. That's the crowd. They are so fickle. You try and pin down the crowd. You try and pin down this group of non-believers. They don't stand for anything. It's like, nah. And that's the world in which we live today. So you've got the non-believers who are angry, shaking their fist at God. You've got the other non-believers. Most people in our society today are just like, nah. And then you've got the believers. People like Peter, James, John, Andrew, Thomas, Thaddeus, Lazarus, Mary, Martha. You got this handful of people that left everything in their lives to follow after Jesus. And along the way, Jesus would meet people and he would invite them into a relationship. And they believed and they followed after him. And I think about people like the blind man that Jesus encountered. He became a disciple of Jesus I think about the royal centurion when he healed his son and he became a believer, a follower of Jesus. We can think of stories like Zacchaeus, the wee little man. And when he encountered Jesus, he left everything and followed him. But let's be honest, the followers of Jesus in the Bible, and I think even today, it's a pretty small handful of people. We're a remnant. We've always been a remnant from the scripture. And even throughout our history, God always uses the remnant, that small group of believers who say, I'm putting a stake in the ground. I am following Jesus. I am orienting my life around my relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'm going to put the Bible at the center of all that I do. So many people, again, I talked about this last week, they, 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 they take the Bible and they want the Bible to wrap around themselves. Jesus says that's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We wrap our lives around Scripture and His Word. Don't proof text my words, even the hard ones. And so we live into these things. So you've got the, the non-believers 
in the believers. Verse 49. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for this, that this one man die for all the people than the whole nation perish. Caius, Caiaphas was a politician. He was caring more about what was expedient in the moment. He, Caiaphas only cared about himself. He cared about himself and for the nation, God's people, the Israelites, but he was really all about himself. And he was speaking politically and selfishly. He did not say that on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied, these are now uh, John's commentary, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. The ironic part is, Caiaphas thinks that he is speaking selfishly and politically, but what Caiaphas is actually doing is he is speaking theologically and prophetically. He's very pragmatic. He says, folks, we got to do something about this guy because if we don't, we, we're, we're just, just going to kill this one guy. We kill this one guy and we save our whole nation. He's very pragmatic, and so it makes a whole lot of sense in the moment. Because if we don't kill this guy, the people are going to start getting wound up. There's going to be a riot, and the Romans are going to come in, and they're going to kill us all. So it makes a lot of sense politically. It makes a lot of sense uh, to, in, in a kind of an expedient kind of way. But what Caiaphas is saying, or what he doesn't understand, that is he is actually prophesying. He's prophesying. What he is actually speaking is about this idea, this theological idea of substitutionary atonement. That one person can actually save the sins for the nations, for the world. See, he's putting one person against the nation. And he's saying, hey, this one person is going to, if we take him out, he is going to save the nation. And he's right. Because what happens is when they take out that one person, he actually becomes the substitutionary atonement for you, for me, for all of the world, which is absolutely brilliant what's going on here. And Caiaphas doesn't even know it. Isn't that great? You know, I, I think one of the lessons here is that God can use anyone. God can use anyone, even a person who is not a follower of Jesus, to accomplish his purposes. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is how God spoke through a donkey when Balaam was stubborn and hard-hearted. God can even use a donkey to speak truth to God's people. So when we hear people speaking out in the world, they may not be Jesus followers, but God can still use them to bring truth into the world. But on this day, Caiaphas, the master politician, he's trying to do and argue a case for expediency. And God says, I can use that. I can use that. I heard one preacher say it this way. God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. 
Caiaphas, the politician, was looking to kill Jesus for self-serving purposes. But God says, I'm going to use your words to make a prophecy for all of humanity. You meant it for expediency. I mean it for uh, the greater good for all of eternity. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus. Remember, this is what politicians do. They just stand there waiting, waiting and watching. And as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might go arrest him. The plot has been hatched. And now they're waiting. And they're waiting to pounce on Jesus. This is what politicians do. Is they scheme. They connive. They yield their power to make things happen in the world. And this is what the politicians were doing in their own day. They're, they're, they're of course, is for their own agenda. And much of the, the, the politicians today, that's what they're doing as well, for their own agenda. And so the gears of the crucifixion, the die has been cast. Everything is set in place. Now we just got to find him. We need to seize him and we need to kill him. Why? To save the nation. It's for the people, right? We're going to do what we need to do now for the people to save our nation. There's a, a, a theologian and a commentary writer, a guy by the name of William Barclay. He says this, all the steps they made to save the nation would ensure that they would destroy the nation. In other words, all the plans those politicians did on that day, they thought they were trying to save the nation. And what they actually did is they destroyed the nation. Because what happened a few years later is that as people rose up and started to follow the Jesus movement, Jesus said, if you, if you turn your backs, if you turn your backs on God, God will bring wrath and judgment. And in 70 AD, that's exactly what happened. The Romans came into Jerusalem. They came into the temple and they burned it to the ground. So in an act of trying to save the nation, what the Jews actually did is they killed the nation and they became scattered and they spread throughout the world. And Jerusalem and the temple was no more. It lay in ruins. And this is oftentimes what happens in politics. Seeking to save the lives of those actually destroy and tear down political expediency, and we come into the last week of Jesus' life. So what do we do with a text like this? What do we do? And so this morning I am going to give you, I think, three thoughts around how we respond to the politics of what's going on in the text 
and maybe even the politics that go on in the world today. And I just want to acknowledge, I know it's difficult to be a Jesus follower, to be a Christian in America today. It's hard. But I think we cannot put our heads in the sand. We have got to engage. So three lessons I draw from this text. Number one, we need to prioritize our politics. We need to prioritize our politics. What do I mean by that? What I mean is we need to put the politics of Jesus first, the power of Jesus first, and the powers and the politics of the kingdoms of this world second. In other words, you are a Christian first and a citizen of this nation second. You are a Jesus follower first and an American second. I can't tell you how many times over the past week I have heard Christians speaking as if their politics, their earth, their, their primary identity is first as citizens of America and it's influenced by the relationship with God of being a Christian. I think so many of us get this wrong. We say, I'm first an American and it's influenced by my faith in God, in Jesus Christ, in the Bible. I want to encourage you to tip that on its head. That you are first a Jesus follower. First, you are a Christian. And because you are a Christian, because you are a Jesus follower, that influences how you, read, how you live your life in the world. I'm reminded, as Jesus was preaching one of his most famous sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, and people are thinking about all that is expedient, all that is troubling them in the day. What are they going to eat? What are we going to wear? Ah, what do we do? The tension's high. And Jesus says in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God. And it'll all work out. Don't worry about those things. And over and over and over throughout scripture, Jesus tells us, pay attention first to your relationship with God. And then allow that to influence everything else in your life. So we need to prioritize that we are Christ followers first and citizens of this great nation second. Theologian by the name of Karl Barth from the 20th century, he said this, hey, as you're going through life, have the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. I think that's pretty good. You know, this kind of this idea of how, how, how do we do these things? How do we live in the tension? But what I hear, what I see so much today is people tune into the news stations about 72 hours a day. And then they read about three minutes in scripture. We've become so unbalanced in our politics of this earth and how we understand our relationship with God. So I want to challenge you this week. If you watch an hour of news or you read an hour of news about whatever's going on in the political winds of the day, I want to challenge you, spend that an hour and one minute in God's word. This is what I mean by prioritizing what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We have become so unbalanced, folks, and we've got to reset the balance 
prioritize your politics. Number two, I'll say this, position your politics. I'll just say this, stay in your lane. Oftentimes we spend a great deal of time focusing on things that we can't do anything about. We moan and groan about all the political problems in Washington, D.C. We moan and groan about all the problems that you have no control and frankly, you have no authority to speak about. You just have an opinion. Hey, I got opinions too. I got opinions about everything. I got political opinions, but I'm not authority to speak on so many things that go on in the world today. So what are those things in your life, those things that you can actually make a difference in? Sometimes I see these uh, posts on social media, people moaning and groaning and griping about political situations of the day. Little tip for you. You have never changed anyone else's mind who believes differently than you. You're not doing any good by repeating all those social media posts, people that already agree with you. But what you are doing is you are isolating people who do not agree with you. They just think you're a jerk. So knock it off. Instead of focusing on all the political things that you can do nothing about, focus on the things that you can do something about. Stay in your lane. Position your politics. And number three, practice your politics, practice your power to serve other people. Practice your power, practice your politics to serve other people. Again, one of the things that was really discouraging and frustrating for me this week to listen to all the talking heads reflecting on what's going on in America is they were acknowledging, I think, one of the challenges you and I face, especially as Jesus followers. It's this idea of rights. This idea of rights. The right to bear arms. The right to do what I want to do with my body. The right to a, a peaceful transition. And over and over and over, we keep hearing about rights that you and I have. Here's the deal and here's the problem. Jesus doesn't care about your rights. He doesn't. He never says you have a right. You do not have a God-given right to bear arms. It's not in the Bible, folks. And I heard this all, all week long. A God-given right to bear arms. Now, full disclosure, I own a weapon. I actually own several weapons. I love to shoot. I, I appreciate the right the Constitution has given us to bear arms. I like to trap shoot. I like to target shoot. I like weapons. They're, they're great as far as I'm concerned. But it doesn't come from the Bible. And we have to be really careful in the language that we use around rights. Jesus doesn't care about your rights. Jesus cares more about your sacrifice than he does about your comfort. Jesus cares more about the ways that you are serving others than whether you're healthy, wealthy, and happy. Jesus had more power politically on earth and in heaven than anyone else. He had more power than anyone else 
And what did he do with that power? We're going to read about it here coming up. He was gathered with his disciples. He took off his robe and he wrapped it around himself and he served. And then after he served, he said, now go and do likewise. That's what Jesus cares about. Not your rights. He cares about your responsibilities of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That you walk alongside him and that you share his story with other people about you. Jesus doesn't care about your rights. And I know this is a great challenge for us as Jesus followers to be an American where we have been given rights by the Constitution, but to be Jesus followers first and foremost and to lay down our lives for those around us. Jesus cares more about the ways in which you are living and serving in this world than the ways in which you can be happy, healthy, and feel good about yourself. So when he calls us and he gives us power, he says, don't use it for yourself. Use it for others. Practice your politics, not to serve yourself, but to serve others. So there you go. A little bit of politics in the message today. And you know, these three suggestions I gave you today, you know, they, they really are my, uh, these are my thoughts. I just want to own that. They're based on my walk with Jesus Christ. You can argue with me. You can disagree with me on, on a lot of these different points. But I think at the end of the day, we cannot put our heads in the sand or walk through life as incognito closet Christians We've got to be people who say, I believe in Jesus first and foremost. And because of my relationship with him and with God's word, I am going to put a stake in the ground and I am going to live in this world. And I am going to do my very best to vote, to get engaged in politics in, in this world. But I'm never going to forget that I am first and foremost a child of God. And I'm never going to stop sharing that good news with others. Amen? Amen? All right, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that even in the midst of a politically expedient plot to kill you, that God, you use that to overcome, to bring the salvation for all of humanity through one man, the nation, the world has been rescued. And so God, as, as politics runs rampant today, and even people who are gathered here today, we might disagree on all sorts of issues. But God, I, I hope, I pray that the one thing that we can agree on is that you are sovereign, that you are on the throne, that you can use all things for your honor and for your glory. And that God, you invite us to engage in the world as children of God, as people who are influenced by Scripture, as people who look to you for hope and for a future so that 
so that others might know you. And God, we are mindful that this is exactly how you used your power on this earth. You didn't lord it over us. You lived your life on this earth as a servant. And then you died as a servant. And so God, as we wrestle today again with what it means to believe in you, to follow after you, to be a disciple of you, may we too die to ourselves so that we might live with you. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.